Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. I want to begin a new series with you over the next few weeks that is about the presence of the king and the benefits of his kingdom being present. As we have looked at the blueprint for the last few weeks of renewal or revival that God brings to his people and to his church, what has been impressed upon me is that when you're dealing with everything from sickness to the injustices and inequalities in this world, that what we're really asking for is something more than just restraint. We're asking for something more than simply a return to what we have known. We're asking for something we've never yet known. And only the kingdom can bring the end of disease. Only king, the kingdom of, of Christ and the invasion of heaven in, into our earth can bring the end of racial injustice and and inequalities and unfairness in terms of our community and dealing with each other. And so over the course of the next number of weeks, I want to look at Scripture with this in mind. What does it look like for the king to be present? And what does it mean for the, for the people of God to begin to experience the kingdom of heaven on earth? And so we want to look at specific passages And one of those passages is to look at what Paul details in his prayer for the Ephesians. It's in chapter 1, and it reads like this. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what we're really talking about is the nature of kingdom power. What is the the power of the kingdom of God? When you look up a definition of power, all the dictionaries agree. Power is the ability to act. Power is the ability to do. So what many of us are experiencing, what many of us are going through, is basically a a sense of powerlessness. Whether we're being quarantined or whether we're dealing with 
the injustice that, injustices that are so apparent in our society, what's happening is people do not feel like they have the power, and so they're beginning to act in ways that aren't always so rational and aren't always so productive. Because one of the worst things to experience as a human being, one of the greatest fears that we have is to be powerless, to not be heard, to not be able to act, to not be able to do. And for those of us that live in the region around New York City or those who actually work or live in New York City, you realize something about that city, and it's been written of many times, but there were articles that I looked at this week, and it said, New York City is a city that competes with every other great city in the world. New York City competes with... with uh, uh, Tokyo for financial power. New York City competes with Paris for being the most powerful center of fashion. New York City competes with London as the, the capital of the theater. New York City competes with all these different cities. And there's no other city that can possibly even compare to New York City on the level that New York City can compete every single place of power. And everybody recognize that the center of power in the, of city of cities, in a sense, is New York City. One writer said it this way, people don't come to New York to think or to retreat, they come here to do. And, and one way that uh, an interviewer put it, he says, what is it that makes people in, in this area, in New York City, what makes them tick? He says, it's power. Because people are here to say, let me show you what I can do. Let me show you what I can do in music. Let me show you what I can do in architecture. Let me show you what I can do in business. Let me show you what I can do. It's about doing. It's about, it's about showing you that you can make, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And so we live in an area that is a lot about power. And yet... Paul talks about a power in Ephesians 1 when he's talking about the king and his kingdom. He talks about a power that makes New York look powerless in comparison. And, and, and why I'm saying this is because many of us who are Christians, we recognize sort of earthly power. We recognize sort of this idea of worldly power. But we don't recognize what Paul is talking about, that our God has a power that makes New York City look powerless. And that's so important that we get this when we start to think about the king and his kingdom. And so Paul says it this way when he's describing the kingdom of God. He says, God has incomparably great power. I love how he uses these two Greek words, megathos, dunamos. Megaton, dynamite of God. I mean, that, that just translates so easily. The megaton, dynamite of our God. That's how big his power is. But then he says, it's even bigger than you can imagine because he says it's incomparable. There's nothing that compares to the power of the kingdom, to the power of our God. You know, when you're describing power, you describe it by comparison. How fast is a car? Well, it has so much horsepower. 
Yeah, we're, we're always using something in order to describe power by comparison with something else that has power. And yet Paul is saying that if you understand the power of God, if you understand the power of the kingdom of God, it is a power that cannot compare. As a matter of fact, it transcends any scale that we humans even have. It, it, it transcends any known power. The psalmist puts it this way, power belongs to God. So anything that demonstrates power, anything that manifests power, has, has power that has been delegated by God to that thing that is showing power. Let me give you a biblical illustration of this. Jesus understood this megaton dynamite of God. He understood the incomparably great power of God. So Pilate is the representative, the delegated person who has the power of the Roman Empire. And in his understanding, he is powerful and Jesus is not. So he speaks to Jesus in a way that shows that he believes he can crush Jesus. Now Jesus, in his dealing with Pilate, if you'll look at the gospel narrative, in his dealing with Pilate, he's not flippant. He's not sarcastic, but he's incredibly calm in, in the face of what looks like the power that can crush him. And he says to Pilate, Pilate, you have no more power over me than what has been given to you. You see, Jesus absolutely understood the nature of power, and he understood the nature of kingdom power. And so, though he stood before and recognized that Pilate had the power of Rome behind him, he also stood before him and said, you have no more power than what has been given to you because all power belongs to my Father. Now, we're going to talk more about this, but let's just... Let's just Let's just ask this question at this point. When you're standing before something that looks like it can crush you, what do you say? When you're standing before something that feels like it's about to make you fail or make you fall apart, what do you say? Jesus didn't ignore or deny the nature of Pilate's power, but he also understood the megaton dynamite of God's power. And he spoke with calmness and said, you have no more power than what is given to you. Now this is incredibly practical. <laughs> I mean, what are we saying? Well, if, if Jesus could stand before Pilate and say that, then you can stand before racism and say that. You can stand before COVID-19 and say that. You have no more, yeah, you have power, but you have no more power than what is given to you. And we have to begin to understand that the nature of power and our understanding of the nature of power must be what governs our response. Yes, Jesus was going to be condemned by Pilate, but he also knew that even in the condemnation that would come through Pilate, God would accomplish his purposes. And he would use Jesus, and Jesus was not flinching at the world's power because he trusted in that megaton dynamite of God's power, the incomparably great power of God.
So, now what we begin to see is because of Jesus' obedience and because of Jesus' submission to the power of the Father and the obedience to the Father's design, the, the Bible says that Jesus Christ has that power himself. As a matter of fact, what Paul says is the king of the kingdom is above every power and every title. Every title, every ruler, every nation, every name that has ever ruled now and in the age to come, Jesus has power over all. And this is what he speaks of here in Ephesians chapter 1. And the question comes, and this is why I'm saying, will you look at what looks like it wants to crush you? And will you say to it, yes, you have power, but you have no more power than what has been given to you. And all power has been given to my Savior, to my King, and to His kingdom. And the question is, do you believe that? Not just have you heard it, and do you intellectually assent to it, but when you stand up to power like Jesus stood up to Pontius Pilate, do you believe? Does it come out of your confession? Does it come out of you know, a, a governing attitude in your life? Nothing, not your boss, you know, not the government, not sickness, nothing has greater power or even comparable power than the power and the authority and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom. And that's when you really under, start to understand what it means to have the king present. We need the king present and we need the benefits of his kingdom present in our midst. But that will take people like you and me who are faced sometimes with what seems like powerless circumstances and saying, no, even these things have no more power than what has been allowed them or permitted them. So Paul prays this. He says, having the heart, eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, you have to see this not just with your, your intellect. You have to see this with the deepest uh, control center of your being that you start to say, this is the truth above all truths. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? You see, it's great to have a theology or a doctrine that says God has incomparably great power. But it only really begins to transform your life when you say, I know about this power. I experience this power in the same way that Jesus knew it. It affects me in the same way Jesus was affected by it. It affects the way I live. It affects the way I deal with others. There's an important little preposition here. It says immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. So that idea of that, that aspect of the preposition is that his immeasurable great power is moving towards us. It's always, it's always bent towards you. It's always you know, moving towards you in your life. But it's, it's even more than just that you have it on your side. It literally means that that's the power that flows through you. Now that changes everything. That changes everything. Every obstacle that you face, every enemy that you face, every, every challenge that you face, you're not facing it 
in the power that is strictly your own and your own limitations. Paul is praying that you will understand this, that you will know this, you will be intimate with this truth and experience this truth in such a way that the power flows through you. Which actually means, again, the ability to do, the ability to make changes, the ability to make impact. It's power. It's the ability to act and the ability to do. I see this so often with believers that though the Scripture is known, it is not practiced. Though this scripture is believed in an intellectual sense, it is never really something that people have experienced. You know, in order to have his power flow through you, you have to begin to believe it first and then you begin to experience it. You don't experience it and then believe it. You believe it, then you experience it. And there are, there are ways here that Paul helps us to understand this incomparable power, this great power. And it's, it, there are three types that he says of manifestations of this power, or I would call them manifest power. Now, can you not agree with me? We need manifest power of God. We don't just need to talk about how great the power of God if it's not manifesting. We need it to manifest. We have, we have a nation in crisis. We have a world in crisis. Many of us are experiencing personal crisis. We're, we're dealing with uh, family issues, of being uh, together in ways we've never been before. We're dealing with uh, marriage issues, friendship issues, separation, all kinds of things. We need manifest power, and we need it now. And, and so we need to begin to understand how he wants to operate in us. Listen. <laughs> it's not that this is, is received passively or Paul wouldn't have to pray for it. He's having to pray for it because it is not manifesting. And it is needed. So therefore he prays for it. So here's the three manifestations of power in this Ephesians passage. This is kingdom power manifest. Resurrection power, he says, and he calls it a power that comes from the headship of Christ. We'll unpack that a bit more. And there is, there is the fact that this power of God is only experienced by born-again believers. So we start with the first type of power of the kingdom, and it's the resurrection power. So Paul says, here's the power that raised Jesus and, was, and seated him at the right hand of the Father. So why does he... Why does he say that this resurrection power is an incomparable power? Why not the power of creation or the power of putting the stars in the sky and the heavens in order? Well, because Paul is saying that the greatest power against us and the greatest power that terrifies us is death. Because in a sense, death is the ultimate powerlessness. Death is separation and cut off from uh, everybody that you love, and death itself is the separation from any power to act or to do. And so Paul says the greatest power that confronts us is death. And think about it. Why is it that certain things scare us so much? Well, uh, I mean, a hurricane is scary with its winds and its destruction and its rain and all this, but what really scares us is the power of death, that hurricanes kill people. 
that that, that power of the wind and, and the power of the flood has taken people's lives. And so we get really upset when we know there's a storm coming because we know there's the threat of death. Why, why is COVID-19 one of the most upsetting illnesses that any of us have ever faced? Well, because it has the power of death. Uh, one of our, our doctors here at Risen King Church practiced medicine for 20 years, and yet in March and April... She said she saw more deaths in March and April from COVID-19 than she had seen in 20 years of medicine. Why is it so upsetting? It's not upsetting that you get a fever. We've gotten fevers before. It's not so upsetting that you have a sore throat. We've had sore throats. It's, It's when you recognize that this thing could take your life. You see, the power of death is really our greatest fear. Because it's, it, it is the ultimate powerlessness. And so what did, what did Paul say? Paul said, here's the kingdom power. It's resurrection power. It, it's defeating death. And he's saying there's no greater power. And that's what Acts chapter 2 says. God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because, and I love this phrase, it was not possible for him to be held by death. Jesus went down into death. He really, truly died. But death could not hold him. Jesus, knowing that death was our greatest enemy, went into death and blew a hole out the backside of death because death couldn't hold on to him. And then he says to us, come and follow me. Come and follow me right through the very, the very pangs of death and I'll show you the way out. And Paul got that so clear and he understood this power so much that in Corinthians he taunts death. <laughs> he had an incredible confidence and a fearlessness when it came to death. He said, death, where is your sting? I mean, a practical implication of this is, is every fear you have is really based in your fear of death. And if you deal with the root fear, all the other fears will lose their power. When you no longer fear death, and you can taunt death, it is because you now have a confidence where you used to have fear. You have a fearlessness. I, I'd never heard of this guy, but I was listening to different teachings on on the power of the resurrection in our lives. And I came across a young German Lutheran pastor who died in the concentration camps for his faith. And the day before he died, he wrote a letter to his parents. He's not a famous guy. And I'm just paraphrasing the letter that he wrote. It was an incredible letter. But he wrote to his parents and he said, I'm joyous and filled with anticipation. I have a strength from faith in Christ. I have more faith than ever. And he absolutely knew, friends, he knew that his sentence of death was the very next day, and this was the last communication he would ever write to his parents. He said, I find jubilation over the grace that makes us a child of God. Today I I shall penetrate the barrier of death today. Believing shall become seeing. Hope shall become possession. 
and I shall forever share in him who is love. What I have only been permitted to preach about, I shall see. Now, those are just a few of his words. This whole letter is powerful. But the question is, what kind of power becomes this kind of joy in death? And basically, Paul answers it and says, this power working in us, it's kingdom power, but the type of kingdom power is resurrection power. You know, resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the resurrection of you from the dead is now the unit of measurement by which we measure God's power in you. See, in you is now the death-breaking resurrection power. Every time you are tempted to say, I'm powerless, every time you go into discouragement or depression or anxiety, see, depression and anxiety have the fingerprints of death. And instead, you've got to stand up to them. I'm not saying they're not real. They are. It feels like Pontius Pilate has the power to crush you. But you have to say to him and to anything else that looks to crush you, you only have as much power as you're allowed. But I have death-breaking resurrection power. The very same power that Jesus broke the bands of death with, with that he broke it as if it was nothing more than flimsy string, is the power that now not only works towards me, but works through me. <laughs> Paul said it to the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. In other words, nothing has the power to keep you from the completion of the destiny that Jesus has for you. Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul understood this death-breaking resurrection power. This is what I'm asking of you. Look, there's some sense in which Paul has to pray this because it's so easy to see earthly power. It's so easy to see Pontius Pilate's power or COVID's power or racism's power. And to believe somehow that there is no power that compares. And Paul says, no, nothing compares to the power of God. But now you have a, a unit of measure now to, to, to understand the power that flows to you and through you. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Even death doesn't have power over you. Well, that's the resurrection aspect. There's a second aspect. Uh, Paul says there's a headship power. Now, I got this from Tim Keller, and I, I really think he's, he's, he's on to something here. And I, I, I think this is, for me, this is where I begin to truly trust this power for myself. I'm not just dissenting, yeah, I know Jesus is raised from the dead, and I know that power is now at work in me. But now, you see, you begin to realize that that the experience and development of that power in your life and living in that power comes from intimacy with who is the head of the body of Christ, Christ himself. That you don't just have this power, you have this power through intimacy. He's the head, you're the body. Look at what he says. He put all things under Jesus' feet. This is Paul speaking and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you understand in relationship now, you don't have power individually. You have power because you're connected to the church who has Christ as his head. It is, it is a power that comes and develops because of intimacy with Christ and because of connection with Christ. Here is what that power means. Jesus' headship is not just over the church, but Paul says his headship is over the whole world. And then he makes some wonderful statements, which I, I would love for us to just turn over and over again and again until we get it. Our head, the Lord Jesus, rules over everything for us. He directs everything for us. We are the body. He is the head. God is exercising His power in Jesus, through, through us, for us. He is head over everything for us. Romans 8, 28 makes it clear. Everything that's happening, everything that's being permitted, everything that is being caused by, by the wisdom and the power of God, everything is happening for you. Now what happens is, because you're not permitted to see all of how God works, you're being asked to trust what you can't see because of what you've seen so far. That you trust Him because of what you know of Him and what He's done for you, even when you can't understand all that He's now doing for you. This is an unbelievable truth in Ephesians 1. All things happen for you. The head is, is, is orchestrating, moving. He is weaving everything in life, it says, for you. Now, a lot of people, like I would say every person, really, deals with very troubling realities. We are living in a time of very troubling realities. And so there are some people that, that you will hear them speak or you'll hear them say where, you know, where they got to in their world, particularly people who are on top, who have been very successful. They love to say, everything has been my own good choices. Um, many years ago, people were asking Oprah Winfrey how she became so successful, how she became so rich. And her answer was, well, I took some time out and I found myself. And then I started making good choices out of who I found myself to truly be. Well, that, that just sounds like you want to pop Oprah up upside the head a little bit. Because uh, it's like the rest of us then, I guess, we're, we don't get to be as rich as Oprah or as famous as Oprah because we haven't found ourselves and we haven't made the wonderful choices that she has. So, so it's, it's, it's really interesting, and I'm, I'm not, I, I actually love listening to Oprah, and I... Um, used to a lot of times uh, observe a lot of human behavior by watching Oprah's talk show. Very interesting. I'm not trying to pick on her, but it's so interesting that a lot of people who have made it to the top like to applaud themselves and say it's because of all my good choices. Now, if you, you deal with m many of the Eastern religions or you deal with even um, some of the religions like Islam, and they will say everything is based on fate. Everything is kind of this fatalistic fate. 
So there's no choices. In other words, it just all happens. Uh, if God wills, it will happen. I remember uh, uh, in Jordan, I was uh, we were going to see the amazing uh, like wonder of the world called Petra, one of the most uh, unbelievable archaeological and, and human accomplishments you'll ever see, this ancient city in the middle of the desert. And we were coming back, and it happened to be Ramadan when we were there. And so our bus driver, you can tell he's getting, he's getting upset, he's getting antsy, because he has been fasting all day, and he's driving us into Amman, and it hits the moment, it hits the very moment when they can begin to eat, when they can break their fast and they can eat. And he's driving us down this six-lane highway, and all of a sudden he seems to just stop on a dime, wheel around, cross six lanes of traffic, and so he can pull into a diner and get some food. And, and, we, and cars are blowing their horns at us, honking, and, and um, these Europeans that were, with, that were on the bus started yelling at him, said, you almost killed us. And he said, well, if Allah wills, you will live, and if he doesn't, we will die. And those Europeans were just, just going nuts over this guy because in his mind, you see, he could break the fast, so it didn't matter if he was being safe or not because it was fate. It was fate whether we made it. It was fate whether we didn't. And I remember those Europeans were fuming. We had about 20 minutes back to Oman, and they were just yelling at him the whole way. They were so upset. So you have these, you have these kind of responses, in a way, to when you face trouble. Some people say, well, it's all about your own decisions, and others say, well, it's nothing but luck. It's nothing but fate. And what Paul is explaining here and what you and I need to get is Christianity says those answers do not satisfy. We, we don't believe it's either of those. Do you not see in your life that, even, that God is even greater than bad choices that you've made? That God who is rich in mercy will take even your bad decisions and turn them for your good. And... and what we have here is we have our God who is pictured and the kingdom that is pictured as a place where choices matter and where God's sovereignty is established and where both the sovereignty of God and the choices of your life, both bad and good, God is working all these things together and he's funneling it all for your ultimate good. That's, that's his promise in scripture. That's his that's his purpose. Even when you are messing up, he's using your, your bad choices or your bad decisions, and he's saying, I will show you how to turn this into good. Uh, one of the patriarchs, one of the people through whom the Messiah came, was Jacob. And Jacob was, his very name means a deceiver. He was a man who was a liar. He was, he was a trickster. He sinned in so many ways, and he sinned so that he could marry his, the woman he loved, Rachel. And yet what we see really clearly is God didn't say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to work with this and figure out how to get Messiah to come. No, the plan all along was that, that the Messiah would come through Rachel, would come through their son Judah. God never had a plan B. He didn't say, oh, I've got I've to shift things around because Jacob is such a mess. No, somehow in the infinite nature of our God, 
Choices matter. Yes, it's Jacob sinned, and it was called sin, and yet God still didn't use some plan B. He didn't say, oh, I've got to adapt to Jacob. His plan all along included both the areas of Jacob's sin and the areas of Jacob's obedience. Even at Pentecost, we see the complexity of our God and the way he deals with reality. Look at Peter's sermon. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not Jesus trying to thrust himself into a precarious situation and make God act. It was all along the plan of God that his very son would become uh, for us a substitute on the cross and that God would treat his own son as if he was absolute wickedness. He was absolute evil. That was the plan of God. And yet, at the same time, there were choices involved where Peter says, you crucified, and you killed him, and your hands are lawless. There, there, there's a bigger reality. If we have a, a power that's bigger than comparison, then there's a reality that's bigger than comparison as well that our little minds can't always, our finite minds cannot really understand. And so I'm asking you today in terms of your relationship to Jesus that you recognize He's the head. He is, he is over all things and He is moving all things towards your good. And that is hard to do when it looks like the world is falling apart. And it's hard to do when it looks like everything's against you. And yet, what was Jesus' response on the cross? He was the one calm one. Not only did he say to Pilate, you only have as much power as is given to you. He demonstrated that to the ones who with lawless, lawless hands killed him and crucified him when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You understand, that's power. Yeah, it looks like everybody's powerful who's putting a nail in his hand. It looks like everybody's powerful who's raising up a cross. But Peter is saying here, hey, there was something bigger going on. And the Lord Jesus himself understood this power in the midst of his pain and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's, that's kingdom power, friends. That's, that's headship power. It's also indication that we don't have a mechanized God. He's not a formula. He's not somebody that you can just say, well, this is who he is and put him in a box. What Paul is saying here is not only is the kingdom a wonderful demonstration of the power of our God, but our God is infinitely wise and powerful. And he's able to work things that you don't even understand and I don't understand. And he's able to work all these things together for your good. When I forget this, it's incredibly debilitating. It diminishes me. It destroys me. It makes me think it's all up to me. And maybe that's okay if you're as rich as Oprah or you're as famous or powerful as Oprah. Maybe that's okay. I don't know. Ever been there. But for most of us, there always seems like there's something putting us down. 
always seems like there's something that just wants to knock you three steps back every time you take one step forward. And so you and I, we may not be able to immediately change our circumstances. But what we've got to do first is change our attitude towards our circumstance. You've got to look at your Pontius Pilate and say, yeah, you've got power, but no more than has been given to you. And guess what? The one who gave you that power, even though you don't know him, he's working for my good. He's working all things, including you, for my good. See, that's incredibly freeing. Here's what I'm saying. God, who has incomparably great power, has bent his will toward your joy. Not just temporary happiness, not just comfort, not just convenience, but towards ultimate joy. And he's asking you now for the joy that's set before you, like Jesus, you see, Jesus endured the cross, not for the joy of the cross, but for the joy that was set before him. He's asking, will you, for the joy set before you, now endure your cross? Because if you do that, you can draw your strength now from his power. In other words, there's important things that are supposed to happen through you I don't fully understand how we can miss it, but Paul had to pray that it would happen with the Ephesians. So I'm guessing that the Holy Spirit is praying that this will happen with you. And that only really these important things that can happen, these impacts that can happen, only happen when the head and the body participate together. Because you see, head and body, my head, the rest of my body, being in some kind of sync with one another is the only way you have life. Cut off the head, there is no life. Basically what Paul is saying, this is the essence of being a Christian, is your intimacy with the head. Jesus isn't your example for you to go off and try to emulate. Matter of fact, if you really look at Jesus as your example, you're, you're crushed. You're a failure. You're, you're lost. You will never live up to Jesus' example. So what it has to be is Jesus has to be your source. Jesus has to be your power. Jesus has to be your record. You don't lift up your own record of righteousness and say how important I am. There's no power in that. You lift up the record of Jesus' righteousness and say how important he is. Because the lifeblood of, of, of the Christian is really the life of Christ in you. It's in him and in union with him that you become a partaker of the divine nature. All the things that you, you, you most greatly long for will not happen because you do them for Jesus. It'll be because he is in you and you are in him and his life is in the body and the head is connected, vitally connected to the body. Paul talks about fullness. I love that word fullness. This is, I mean, the longer I study theology, I'm still surprised by so many things. This idea of fullness, the pleroma. Can you believe this, that God sees us as his glory? That Jesus is saying that Jesus comes into his own through us? 
that Jesus Christ is most glorified by revealing who he is through us. Now, as a parent, I understand this a little bit, probably not nearly as deeply as what Paul is talking about, but what he's saying, what, what Paul is saying about this headship power is similar to when a parent has poured into their children, poured in their life, into their wisdom, in their resources, into their children. And then you, you, you watch as your children behave or act, or you watch as, as your children reveal, in a sense, your glory to the world. And so it can either be incredibly uplifting or it can be incredibly crushing. Around here and probably a lot of places you see parents, they reveal their glory in their children by their bumper stickers. My child is a straight A student or my child made the honor roll. I even like the one that says my child beat up your child that made the honor roll. Uh, you know, the, the, the world knows something of your glory through your manifestation of your children, but also the world can sometimes know your failure. Um, we had this incident when Joseph was about three years old that we took him to um, a conference at seminary, at the seminary I was uh, studying. And this very famous speaker was speaking, and Lisa and I got to meet him uh, right afterwards. And of course, we're saying to him, you know, be, be polite, Joseph. He's about three years old or so. And he's, he's had to be, you know, out too long and sit still too long. And he's starting to squirming. So I take him up in my arms. And we're meeting the speaker. And I can remember I was, I was very impressed. And I wanted him to be impressed with us. And my son reaches into his nose while I'm holding, reaches into his nose, pulls out the biggest booger you ever saw, takes it. And I'm like, oh, no, what's he going to do now? And then he eats the thing right in front of the speaker. And my, my wife and I are completely mortified, like, oh, oh, we are just the worst parents. Our kid has just done the worst thing. And it was great, though. The speaker said, yeah, I have three sons. They, do, they did stuff like that all the time. I, I'm okay with it and all. But you, you, you think, oh, I live or die over the glory that is revealed about me through my children. And isn't that the strangest thing that Jesus is basically saying here? This is headship power. He says, my glory, my power, my fullness is revealed and comes to fruition. It comes into its own as you begin to live in this power. So really, what, what Paul is saying is, is to the extent you grasp this truth, that Jesus is glorified, that Jesus is revealed through you, then you'll begin to realize, okay, that's what I want to do with my life. That's where I want to get this real power is because I want to reveal the glory and the beauty and the, the love and the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's why any real kingdom power, any genuine spiritual power is only going to, is only going to come through born-again believers. Look at what Paul's prayer is. He says, may, may God give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. See, when was it appropriate to pray that prayer? Well, it was only appropriate, Paul said, 
that they would have this spirit of wisdom, that they would have this revelation, that their eyes would be enlightened to the power, the kingdom power that was theirs when he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus. And so understand, you have access through your faith in Christ to all of this incomparable great power of our God. And, and, and it has to do first with, you have to think on it. You have to begin to get a, a, a holy consciousness that says, okay, I am not powerless. I have the power over death. I have headship power. In other words, I have, I have become a partaker of the divine nature. And so that power is moving towards me, but it's also moving in me. And the headship not only is that Christ is head over me, but he's head over the whole world. And he exercises that headship through the church, which includes me. So I have to begin to think that out. I have to begin to say, I, I believe that. I received that truth. But friends, it isn't realized and it's not fully experienced till you start acting on it. Until you start working it out in your life. The, the problem with a lot of people is they say, okay, when I feel that power, then I'll move. When in reality, the Bible pattern is you move, then you feel that power. That that real spiritual power has always come in the scriptures through obedience. How do I know you really believe it? I, I know you believe it when you start obeying. I know you believe it and trust in it when you start acting on it. Think about it. What did, what did Abraham have to do? Abraham was asked to sacrifice his, his son of promise. He was asked to sacrifice Isaac. And, and you know he had a wrestling match with that, but we don't see that in the Scriptures. But we know he had a wrestling. A father who has waited over a hundred years for a son. And yet here God says to him, now, now you, you must sacrifice him. And the Scripture says he chose, he made a decision, he got up and was persuaded to obey. This is so important. God did not reveal himself as Jehovah Jireh till Abraham had moved to the mountain of sacrifice. So many of us want to say, God, prove that you're Jehovah Jireh, then I'll go to the mountain. God says, I'm waiting for you on the mountain. It's on the mountain he reveals, I am the one who provides. You see, as you move in obedience... And again, I'm telling you, why I, and why I love preaching and why I love teaching is first, you've got to think it out. First, you've got to become conscious of this, of this power. You have to have a holy consciousness of it. But once you're conscious of it, friends, you can't just leave it there. It's not going to develop you without you acting on it. But let me tell you, every time he asks you to go up the mountain and sacrifice he will reveal Jehovah Jireh to you. He will reveal that he is Jehovah Jireh. The power was provided on the mountain. And every time you ascend the mountain, you will grow and develop in honor, in growth, in power. This is developmental and it's all dependent on intimacy and intimacy that comes from a believer.
This power is only available to those born of the Spirit. This power is not, it is not, friends, it is not separate from the fact that you've come to know that it is Jesus plus nothing that makes me acceptable to God. Your obedience doesn't make you acceptable. Your obedience doesn't merit the power. You see, the power has already been secured for you. Your obedience reveals that you trust that it's Jesus plus nothing. And what happens when you start operating in this headship power, in this resurrection power, in this genuine spiritual power? Well, what happens is this. A potent, omnipotent holiness starts to work in all your twisted brokenness. And it begins to close the gap. You see, only, only to growth in the knowledge of Him, only as the eyes of your hearts are enlightened, only as the certainty of the promises and the power and the presence of God becomes real to you and you live in the calling that He's called you, only then is the power operating in you to make you whole. It's amazing Many of us want to be whole, but we don't want to develop in wholeness. Many of us are very discouraged by our brokenness and our twistedness. And yet we don't want to move in the power that will close the gap. That will take the twisted and untangle it. That will take the broken and bind it up and heal it. And make it a place of His glory. Do you understand? Fullness means that he wants to manifest his wholeness in your brokenness so that your brokenness becomes a place of testimony and praise. He wants to come into his own by making you whole. That's what he's bent towards. But it only happens for those who have a sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We receive this. We need the King. We need the presence of the king and we need the benefits of the presence of his kingdom. We who are twisted and broken in his headship, in his resurrection power, through faith, real, live, active faith, can be made whole. We receive this in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Paul prayed, Father. Father, Paul prayed for the Ephesian churches that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would begin to experience this incomparable power that was not only moving towards them, but was also moving the whole world in, in their favor. And he was saying also that you were moving in such a way that you wanted to do it through them. That this fullness that Jesus would come into his own through us. What an awesome privilege. What an awesome power. Lord, as we face all these things in our day that say to us, I have the power to crush you, I ask today we would stand up fearlessly and say, death has been taken off the table, therefore nothing can crush me. Death has been taken off the table, therefore... No other power has been given that can take away what I love the most, my Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask, would you come into our twisted and broken lives? 
you make us whole. Opening the eyes of our heart to the power that's at work within us. And then use us to bring a broken world into wholeness so that Jesus might be revealed in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.